Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 10 in our 1 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Food Sacrificed to Idols and the Limits of Christian Freedom, where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, we're going to begin a three-chapter odyssey on one topic, effectively, and that is the question of meat sacrifice to idols or food sacrifice to idols. And, And interestingly, it's an issue that we would think in 21st century America, we really don't need to deal with. But the issue goes much deeper than we think it does. First of all, idolatry is a bigger issue than we could ever possibly imagine, still with ourselves. But beyond that, we're going to see just the way that we should be interacting with other brothers and sisters in Christ in the context of healthy local church life. And we're going to come up with a principle, and we're going to see especially in chapter 9, but it's going to be beginning here in chapter 8 and carrying on through chapter 10, and that is love limits liberty, that we do have liberty, freedoms, we have rights, but we need to think about how the exercise of those rights might affect someone else. We shouldn't be so selfish that we are vaunting ourselves or pushing ourselves forward and and exercising our liberties without any consideration of how it might affect someone else. Mm. We're very selfish people or we live in a selfish time. And so to be able to think more and more like a body to think like the body of Christ, to think how is how are my how are my decisions, my freedoms, my choices affecting others is going to be vital. But we're going to start right away with chapter eight and walk through some of the basic principles of the food sacrifice to idols issue back in ancient Corinth. Well, let me go ahead and read First Corinthians chapter eight as we begin that conversation. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords— Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Andy, who's Paul addressing in verses 1 through 3 
And why was the eating or not eating of food sacrificed to idols such a problem in the first century church? All right, so Paul is addressing people who have the right doctrine about idols and about meat sacrificed to idols, namely Paul's doctrine, but they're not exercising their freedoms properly. And so they're so enamored with their own theological knowledge and insights that has now set them free completely in this matter of meat sacrifice to idols that they're forgetting another dimension. And the other dimension is what is it doing to your brothers who are watching you? And so they're so in love with their own theological knowledge that their, their knowledge is puffing them up into arrogance. They don't understand that there is a connection between what we know theologically and how we live in love toward others. And so that's the very thing Paul is going to be addressing over three chapters, love, limits, liberty. So he's addressing here individuals who would agree with him from the heart theologically that an idol is nothing and meat is just meat and there and there's no such thing as a spiritual contagion on actual physical meat. You're not going to catch a spiritual virus by eating the meat. They know all that, but they're forgetting there are people watching you and people are being affected by how you are. So he's trying to rein in how much in love they are with their own theological knowledge. Now, in the second part of your question, why was the eating of meat such a problem in the Corinthian church is idolatry was rampant when Paul came to that, that city. There were idols everywhere. Uh, just as Paul had seen in Athens, there, were, there was, a, there was a, a, a god or an idol to everything, even to an unknown god. And so same thing in Corinth. And so these, this was the lifestyle before the gospel came. It, it, it was was a big issue. Uh, furthermore, beyond that is the, the issue of meat itself. We're used to going to a supermarket and, and buying meat at, from the, the butcher section of a supermarket wrapped up in cellophane, let's say, and, and we never saw the thing alive. <laughs> um, you know, back in the day, people often saw things alive and then later ate them, like a chicken walking around or even a cow. Uh, but back then, uh, because there was no refrigeration or food delivery systems, if you're going to eat meat, something as big as a cow is going to be a communi community thing. And it was generally religious. So there would be um, meat sacrificed to a god or a goddess, etc. in that pagan culture. And then that's where they could have the enjoyable, um, you know, just the pleasure of eating meat. And so it was all part of the idolatrous and immoral life that they were living before Paul ever came, including sexual immorality with temple prostitutes, as we covered back in chapter six. And so this is, this is an issue. Um, the eating of meat was wrapped up in that lifestyle. Now that the gospels come and they've, they're getting some theological instruction on what an idol is and what's really going on. We'll talk more about that. Idols are just, just you know, mute pieces of, of wood or stone or metal. But behind them, there is a reality, and that's demons. And Paul's going to get into all of that. However, in and of itself, the idol is nothing. And, and meat sacrificed to the idol that is nothing is still meat. And meat that is just laid at the foot of a stone idol and then later, later taken away and sold in the marketplace is still just meat. And these individuals knew that theologically, and they were flaunting their freedoms. Mm. And that was damaging within the body of Christ because there are some people that two weeks ago were immersed in that wicked lifestyle. Now they've only freshly come out of it and they see these more mature individuals basically behaving as they had, but with very different convictions on it. And they're like, they're confused. They're saying, mm -hmm. I thought we were done with that life. And so Paul's saying, hey, what's that doing to others? Yeah, so that really encapsulates this knowledge that can mm -hmm. cause or was causing them to be puffed up. Right. Why is being puffed up so harmful in the body of Christ? And mm -hmm. what does Paul mean then that love 
builds up. Okay, that's a, a very good image. Knowledge puffs up like a bubble. You could imagine, you know, there's no reality to it. And and really is a picture of pride. They're puffed up in ego. They think they're greater than they really are. Paul's going to really put them in their place with a striking statement. If anyone thinks he knows something, he doesn't really know as he ought to know. It's like, well, that's a statement that shouldn't be taken absolutely because there are things we definitely know, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that. The point is arrogance. The point is pride to be so puffed up with your own ego because you've achieved this knowledge. And I think we've seen that. Sometimes you see individuals training for ministry or immersing themselves in theology and they become arrogant. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the knowledge causes them to become arrogant. Um, but instead, they should be humbled by it and thankful for the fact that they've been well instructed. So that's the puffing up. But instead, we want to see building up or edification. That's sometimes the translation. Uh, there are different images of the body of Christ. There's one of them, body. Um, and so the verb usually with that would be growth, growth toward maturity. Another image of the church is an architectural image. And there's a sense of a blueprint and a builder and living stones, Peter gives us, that are put in place, a foundation laid. And so that's the building up or edification sense. Or there's an agricultural sense where you have like a field that's growing to full harvest, et cetera. These are all images. So this is the architectural sense. And uh, the fact of the matter is uh, knowledge, this, this knowledge distracted or de detached from Christian maturity uh, just puffs up your ego, makes you think you're greater than you really are. But the fact of the matter is all knowledge should feed love and love builds up the brother in Christ, builds up the body of Christ. And so that's what he's going to get after on this topic. We need to build each other up toward maturity or toward, toward you know, the full uh, stature of the temple of God. Andy, how should we answer someone who might take this too far and assert that all Christian knowledge is bad since it tends to make people arrogant? Yeah. Well, the answer is never, and we, we hear that all the time, the distinction, distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge. The answer isn't have less head knowledge. The answer is to let your head knowledge result in growing faith and transform character resulting in right actions. And that's how I argue in my book, An Infinite Journey. That's knowledge, faith, character, action. And so it starts with factual knowledge. That's a good thing. The answer, the remedy isn't, I'm going to stop reading my Bible. I'm going to stop reading good Christian books. I'm going to stop listening to good Christian sermons. I have enough head knowledge. I need to now act on what I know. That's not the answer. The answer is be faithful to act properly on what you do know. Don't mm. cut down factual knowledge or head knowledge. So fundamentally, the idea there is not to turn away from good, sound Christian instruction. And, we, and we've seen movements do that, that become really anti-intellectual, uh, anti anti-theological, because they're really going for religion of the heart. Um, but then they're not careful in their exegesis. They don't really know a lot of theology. Mm -hmm. They are you know, immature theologically and vulnerable, frankly, for false teaching. So that's not the remedy. The remedy is to do what Paul says here. Let your, your head knowledge, your factual knowledge, result in a greater love for God and for others. Now, you referenced verse 2 a moment ago uh, that we shouldn't assume that there's nothing that we know, but I think there is a powerful work of verse 2 to humble us. Sure. How should verse 2 humble every Christian on the face of the earth, and how should all true knowledge lead to transformed character as you've just been elaborating? Yeah, so I think <laughs> – let me let me just the verse says if anyone thinks he knows anything he does not yet know as he ought to know uh, so 
I think fundamentally what he's saying there is if you're enamored with all that you know, you don't know anything, <laughs> all right? Because mm. we're supposed to know God. Now, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. The fundamental conviction I have in the book I wrote on heaven is that God is an infinite subject that will take an infinite amount of time for us to begin to study. So I remember years ago there was a um, – a movie about Pistol Pete Maravich, and uh, his father was a, uh, a head coach in, in real life, the head coach of the LSU Tigers. And uh, he had all these young buck basketball players on his team, and it was maybe one of the first, if not the first practice of the season. He held up a basketball. He said, this basketball here represents all there is to know about the game of basketball. Then he took a Sharpie and he drew a circle on it about three inches in diameter on the face of the basketball. This circle represents what I know about the game of basketball. And then he put a tiny dot in the center of the circle. This represents what you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was humbling and he's meaning to humble them. All right. So what basketball would he put for everything there could be uh, known about God? There is no basketball. Even the highest heavens can't contain him. And so if you are so enamored with all that you know, you don't know God as you ought to know. The more you know, the more you ought to know that you don't know. Hmm. I'll give you another illustration of this. I thought I knew a lot when I was in high school. I got accepted to MIT. When I got to MIT, I, got, I started to get a real education on all there was to know. And I didn't realize whole fields of study in which there are entire departments that I didn't even know existed. And then it really came to the fore when I started to do in uh, do fire extinguisher uh, inspections as a job. And I was taken down to the discard basement of the humanities library, one of something like 16 libraries at MIT. And it was as far as the eye could see down there uh, just – books upon books upon books that have been discarded. They weren't even being used. And that was just in the humanities library. And people don't go to MIT for the humanities. Let me tell you right now, they go for technology. Uh, at any rate, I picked up a book. It was on some subject I'd never heard of. And it was like 500 pages long and it wasn't even being used. It was obsolete. Mm -hmm. And then I started to realize I don't know much. So I think the more we study God, the more you study the Bible, the more you ought to know that you don't know. So don't be puffed up with and enamored at your own theological knowledge. What does verse 3 mean, and how does it connect to the verses that we've just been discussing? The man who, who loves God is known by God. So the issue fundamentally is your knowledge should serve your relationship with God, which Jesus defined this way. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Well, you have to have knowledge before you can know God, because no one can call on the name of the Lord who's never heard of him. And so factual knowledge precedes all relationship. We have to know about God before we can know him. But if you do, then you will love God. And if you know him and love him and you're in a right relationship with God, then fundamentally the knowing is God is knowing you. What's more important than us knowing all these facts about God is, does God know us? Does God know us? Because you can think about on Judgment Day when Jesus said, uh, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Or again, the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins and the five foolish virgins come later having bought oil. 
but it's too late. And they're pounding on the door and he's saying, I don't know you, go away. And so the fundamental thing is, does God know you? Mm. Does he know you savingly? Does he search us and know us? And do we know that in a relationship with him? So fundamentally, verses one through three in chapter eight are, don't be so enamored with your knowledge. It isn't that big a deal. What really matters is, does God know you? In verse four, Paul makes the shift to begin talking about food offered to idols. How does Paul's teaching about idols in verses four through six show that knowledge in and of itself is good and desirable? Well, we de we definitely do need to understand some facts, some spiritual facts, and and knowledge does feed actions. It does feed a lifestyle. So the people in Corinth, before Paul came with the gospel, before he was there, they really did believe that the gods and goddesses existed. Mm -hmm. They really did believe, at least many of them did. I think there were probably some practical atheists back then who said, nah, this whole thing's a scam. But there were other people that really genuinely did believe in the gods and goddesses. Mm -hmm. And idols are, are symbols of the gods and goddesses, all right? Uh, and demons who actually do exist are God and goddess impersonators. They'll do supernatural things to convince the gullible people that the gods and goddesses do exist. So then in comes the gospel and the gospel begins to tell the people the truth about all that. Let me tell you what's really going on here. There are There is one God and only one God. And there are not many gods and goddesses in reality, now there are demons that impersonate them, but the fact of the matter is um, an idol is nothing. It is a nothing thing. It's a work of human craftsmanship as Isaiah lampooned in Isaiah 45 when he mm -hmm. talks about the idol maker who takes a length of hardwood, cuts it in half, and turns half of it into an idol that he bows down and worships and says, save me, you are my God. And then the other half he uses to bake his bread. He makes a fire with it and he uses it to cook. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Isaiah ridiculing idolatry. But Paul's just saying straight out, theologically, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. There is one and only one God. That is theologically true. So let's talk about knowledge. That's true. And we need to know that. So he wants the weak brother and sister to read that. He wants the weak, struggling, recently converted um, you know, person to say, hey, look, what you are thinking is true. This whole idolatrous system is not real. There are no gods and goddesses behind them. We want you to know that. There is only one God, the creator of all things. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many so-called gods and many so-called lords, yet for us, we know there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And so that's Trinitarian theology. You know, God the Father created all things through Christ the Son by the power of the Spirit. That's good, sound theology. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the basis of his teaching on meat sacrifice to idols. So we've got to start there. Now, Andy, I want to zero in on verse 4. What does that verse say about idols? And what is the relationship between the gods of the pagans and demons? How could we understand yeah. that better? Well, he doesn't mention demons here, but he will mention them later. And he says, look, we can't partake in, in those pagan sacrifices because they're offered to demons. And demons are real. 
So we need to understand there aren't gods and goddesses, but there are definitely demons, fallen angels, and they're very intelligent. And they hide. They, they masquerade. They hide behind things, just like Satan hid behind the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And so um, I do believe that there are supernatural origins to false religions. I think that, that demons do speak to cult leaders and do miracles. And we know at the end of the world, the Antichrist will do false miracles. Mm. They will do actual miracles, mm. but lead in a false direction toward a false god. And so fundamentally, we need to understand, like the great as Artemis of the Ephesians, her image fell from heaven. Something happened there that caused the people to think, hey, this is real. Something's real. And I think God... Uh, in his own, for his own purposes, allows demons some some latitude to do supernatural things, and so religions like Islam, in which some supernatural beings actually think did speak to Muhammad in the cave, or Mormonism, Mormonism, where some I believe some supernatural being did in fact speak to or yeah. affect Joseph Smith and begin that false religion. I think there are supernatural origins to these religions. And so it is with these god and goddesses, um, uh, which are impersonated by demons. Having unfolded this truth about idols and differentiating between these so-called gods and the one true God in verses 4 through 6, Paul turns to the issue of conscience in verses 7 and 8. What is a weak or defiled conscience? How can someone be healed from such a conscience? And how should other Christians treat a person with a weak or defiled conscience? Right. So let's look at the link between verse 6 and verse 7. For us, there is but one God, the Father, uh, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And the idols are nothing. And the gods and goddesses are really nothing. Verse 7, but not everyone knows this. Now, who's the everyone in the sentence? Well, certainly not every human knows this. That's why we need to share the gospel with people. But even the Christians in that church, they didn't know it as they should. They're mm. still, still having some doubts, still some old habits of thinking. They might still have some superstitions and some fears and some anxieties about the gods and goddesses. Is it okay what I'm doing now that I'm following Jesus? I mean, maybe maybe Jesus is just one God among the gods. Mm. And, and they're struggling. They're new Christians. They believe Jesus is Lord, but they haven't fully worked out the implications yet. So that's verse 7. Not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat food, they think of it that way. They think there's something real that it's been offered to. And this is going to affect me if I eat it. I'm going to be drawn back into that lifestyle again. And their conscience is weak. So in other words, um, their, their mind thoughts are weak. They, they, um, their conscience might be strong in its weakness. It might chide them for having not kept certain patterns of paganism um, in light of the gospel. Maybe they, they, their conscience is wanting to, I don't know, split the difference and do some syncretism thing, et cetera. So uh, the conscience needs to be buttressed by truth. And then, see, all the conscience is doing is telling the individual, do the right thing, but it doesn't tell them what the right thing is. It's theology, it's doctrine that tells you what the right thing is. And then the conscience then gets strong mm. in a good way. The weak, weak or defiled conscience here is this, the, the innate drive, do the right thing, tied to a murky theology that's not been worked out yet. 
So that's what I think by the weaker brother or the weak conscience. They, they haven't worked through clearly and sharply their theology yet, and so they're struggling. How does verse 8 limit the eating of meat, and what point does verse 8 make in Paul's train of thought? Basically, it's like you don't have to eat, all right? Paul says, I, I'd rather not eat meat. And I'd like you, oh strong brother, to come to that c- conclusion that you're not not in any way, you're not going to be at any disadvantage if you limit your liberty and don't eat meat. Mm. There's going to be some circumstances in which you're going to, I'm hoping, choose like I do, not to eat meat, not to eat the food. And you're going to do that for the sake of your brother. It's not going to hurt you. He says plainly in verse 8, food doesn't commend us or bring us near to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat and no better off if we do. We're we're not helped. Both of those, by the way, both halves of that statement tend in the same direction. Don't eat. Hmm. It doesn't help you. And so he's urging them uh, fundamentally to say, to say no. Now, also he's speaking to the weak brother. If you can't, if your eating doesn't come from faith, don't do it. Don't do it. So stay away from the meat until you can figure out what's really going on there. Mm. And you can understand the truth that I've just given you, that there is one and only one God and that idols are nothing, and that you then can with great confidence to eat meat, no problem, if you're surrounded by nothing but strong, well-established brothers and sisters in Christ, enjoy the meat. Meats taste good. Paul would be like that. But if you've got anyone in the room who might be damaged by it, now that's what we're dealing with here. Mm. So he's saying, look, you know, abstain if you need to. That's what he's saying. So this really does address also that question of how Christians should treat others with a weak or defiled conscience. There should be a sense of care and a desire to uh, serve and consider the interests of that brother or sister in such a case. Exactly. Andy, what is a stumbling block? And how could someone who totally accepts Paul's argument about idols in verses 4 through 6 and eats whatever he chooses whenever he chooses do spiritual harm to a weaker brother or sister? Well, a stumbling block is uh, something that causes somebody offense. Um, uh, In this particular way, I think it brings them to sin. Um, They stumble into sin. Uh, You know, like James says, we all stumble in many ways. James means we stumble into sin. And so the idea is your exercise of freedom causes someone else to stumble and fall into the muck pit. And what is that muck pit? Well, violating your conscience through very recently changed habits that are still not firmly understood theologically. Person's not mature in their thinking and they have very strong history of going to the to the temple and eating that meat and then maybe having sex with a prostitute. It was just what they'd do on Friday nights. You know, they'd take some of their hard-earned money and they'd go down there and have a good time. Mm. And now the gospel came and you're starting to learn you can't do that anymore. But then they're struggling and they see a brother eating the meat and they're like, well, wait a minute, maybe he's doing it. He's one of the leaders in the church. And, and so at that point, your freedom, the exercise of your freedom causes that individual to, to do what? To violate their conscience. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will be emboldened to eat what's been sacrificed to idols. And so he's drawn back in to his old lifestyle that he's only been out of for a, a month or two or a few weeks, now he's doing the same things that he broke away from. You know, and that's the whole thing. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul talks about how the gospel came and made a radical transformation in the Thessalonians' lifestyles. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Mm. They, it was a radical change in their lifestyle. So they didn't go do that anymore. Very alluring, to the, very attractive to the flesh. Why do you think that the Jews struggled so much with the Canaanite religions? It's because they appealed to the sensual drives. Good meat, sexual pleasure, all of that stuff. Now you're not supposed to do that? Yeah, you're not supposed to do that anymore. But now he sees you, the strong brother, not indulging with the prostitutes, but you're eating meat. Because an idol is nothing in the world, and there are no gods and goddesses, just the one God, and I can eat anything I want. But he, you don't get a conversation with that guy. Mm. He's like, oh, he's there. I guess maybe all that's all right after all. Then he goes in, but he doesn't feel good about it. The indwelling spirit tells him this isn't right because he is indulging in sexual immorality. He is doing some other things. He is bowing down to the idol like he used to do to get mm. the meat. He's doing some different things. And he's like, uh, and now he's destroyed. So Paul says, don't do it. Yeah. So in this verse and really the rest of the chapter, Paul then is is turning to this limiting of Christian freedom based on a love for brothers and sisters in Christ and for mm -hmm. God ultimately uh, as we walk together. Yeah. What possible damage does Paul imagine that a free, bold Christian could do to a weak Christian if that free Christian eats meat in a temple? What does Paul mean by saying that the weaker brother is destroyed right. by that free brother's action? That's a very strong word. Uh, and I think we would have to imagine it's at least possible. He means um, ultimately lost. You know, his faith is destroyed. He's, that individual makes a shipwreck of their faith. Their faith in Jesus is not strong enough to resist the lure back into the old pagan lifestyle. Hmm. And now they are renouncing Christ and just living the same pagan life they were living in before Paul ever came to town. That's destroyed. And so the idea is you've got to fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. Jesus said he who stands, stands firm to the end will be saved. And so they, they need to lay aside every sin that hinders and, and so easily entangles and run the race with endurance. We can't run half the race and then say that was enough. We have to keep going. And so that's what destroyed means. The, the danger is hell. The danger is apostasy, turning back again to those old things that they used to do. And they're doing it all because they misunderstood you, the strong brother, who's flaunting his freedoms. Mm. So then Paul's turning very clearly to the strong brother saying, don't do that. You make certain that the people watching you could not possibly misunderstand what you're doing. Mm. And so it would cause a limitation of freedoms. You might be able to walk right through a temple area and not sin and pick up some meat on the way and wouldn't bother you at all. But who's watching you? Who's watching you? And so fundamentally, you ought to have enough concern for Christ because this brother in Christ for whom Christ died is destroyed. Now, in that way, I think we shouldn't mess up our theology saying that Jesus can die for people who end up in hell. That's impossible. There is no sense in which Jesus ever sheds his blood for anyone who ends up in hell. But the point is there's a dynamic race to be run here. And he's saying, mm. Jesus died for him. You need to care enough for him to limit your freedoms. And this really overflows into verses 12 and 13. What strong statement does Paul make in verse 12? Mm -hmm. And what resolution does this lead Paul to in verse 13? Right. Well, think how, how significant the sheep and the goats teaching is. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. Well, let's take the, the same idea here. 
I was struggling in my conscience and you buttressed and supported me and built me up to full maturity. Versus in this particular passage, I was struggling and you led me straight to destruction. Mm. Don't do that. That's what Paul's saying. It's very negative. This brother for whom Christ died is, is destroyed by your freedom. And when you sin against your brothers in this way, you sin, and they and wound their weak conscience, you, you draw them into violating their conscience, you're sinning directly against Christ. That's what he's saying. So if what I cause my brother, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'm, I'm not going to eat meat again. He said, I'm going to limit my own liberty. And that leads him right into chapter nine, where he's going to talk about himself. We'll, but we'll get to that in the future. God willing. Andy, a question that might arise for some is how to faithfully obey this passage while at the same time not living in constant worry about pleasing other people. How does Paul's resolution here in verse 13 connect with his earlier statement in verse 8? And what practical advice do you have for our listeners as we seek to be faithful to this text? Right. Well, very few of us are going to actually literally be dealing with meat sacrifice to idols. I think it more just comes with Christian freedoms. So what would be those freedoms? It might be an alcohol issue. Uh, I personally don't drink any alcohol, but I don't make that, you know, that's my own decision. Um, I know that other Christians do feel the freedom to drink alcohol, but you could well imagine somebody who, for whom alcoholism was a major part of their non-Christian life and only recently have they come out of it. Imagine inviting that individual to a party and then just serving alcohol freely. Uh, that might be an example of, of limiting your liberty. Hmm. Others, it might have to do with you know, programs you watch, movies you watch. I mean, we should, none of us be defiling our consciences by wicked things, watching wicked things. But there are some people, I, I, for myself, I would say something I've struggled with is, is um, you know, how much time to spend on spectator sports. When I was a, when I was a non-Christian, I was immersed in spectator sports. I was from a, a city, Boston, that had a lot of big time sports teams. Mm -hmm. and, and I spent a lot of time on that. And I remember making commitments to just break away from that. And, and again, that's my own conviction. It's not an evil thing, but it's just the way we influence each other. I could imagine somebody inviting me, hey, we're going to watch the Super Bowl. Do you want to come? And it's like, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just think about the effect that your decisions would have on someone, on someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, might also have to do with the way, let's say, women dress and, and how, um, you know, I have the freedom to wear what I want. But, but you ought to think about what it might do to your brother Christians. Don't say, well, you shouldn't look. You know, th when you make choices about your garments and about how you present yourself, think about what effect this might have on the conscience of someone else. Anyway, these are different ways we can live this out in our lives. Andy, what does all of this teach us about genuine Christian love? And what final thoughts do you have for us today? Yeah, fundamentally, uh, genuine Christian love is is recognizing we are in one body in Christ. And if anything that I do to my brother or sister in Christ helps them toward final perfection in Christ, that glorifies God and is much in line with the, the purpose of Christ the Savior. Conversely, anything I do that damages that process um, is being weeded out by this specific chapter. We need to cut that out. Uh, love means I want what's best for you. I'm delighted in what's best for you. What will be most for your glory and your perfection and your fruitfulness in on judgment day and for all eternity, that's what I want to do. Who you are, what's happening with you, how, you, how you're living your life matters to me. And I'm going to do everything I can to bless you rather than selfishly eating meat or any freedom that I have just because it makes me happy. 
Well, this has been episode 10 in our First Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 11, entitled, The Rights of a Gospel Minister, where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1-14. through 14. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.